Welcome, 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 everyone, to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, and on this episode, we are continuing our discussion of the American healthcare system. This time, Brian and I sit down over Zoom with Isabel Present, one of the NUPR magazine editors, about her recent piece on healthcare titled Bold Reforms on America's Healthcare Quilt. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, and this week I'm joined by one of my producers, Brian Grady, and one of the Newper Magazine editors, Isabel Present. If you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves to the listeners. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Hi, Max and Brian. Thank you so much for having me on, too. I'm so excited to talk about this piece. My name is Isabel Present, uh, she, her pronouns. I'm a PPE major in my third year and I'm an editor at Newper. Fantastic, Isabel. We're super excited to have you on the podcast this week, especially to continue our discussion of the American healthcare system, which is one of the most pressing and complicated issues facing American politics these days. And so you wrote a piece on this topic called Bold Reforms on America's Healthcare Quilt. And so for the listeners, could you give us a little explanation of what is the American health care quilt and what does it mean to fall through that quilt? America's current healthcare system is very patchwork. And what this means is that multiple programs from various different entities come together to form the quilt. However, this quilt, like a patchwork quilt, has many holes that people can fall through if they don't meet a certain income or demographic threshold. Fantastic. And we will definitely be discussing this in a lot more detail later on in the show. Before we get to that, one of the, I think, most effective things you do in your article is you lay out a pretty solid and comprehensive framework for how we should be thinking about the American healthcare system. That includes a bunch of different aspects that determine the quality of the system. Could you give us a little explanation of your framework that you propose for evaluating the system? I argue that there are four aspects that we as a society must take a look at in order to determine the most efficient system. The first is efficacy, which is simply does the health system perform its intended task? Is care given? Then there's equity, which is access to the health system across all groups. Then affordability is the cost reasonable given the procedure and accountability are providers held to certain standards. All four of these are necessary to contribute to the utility, the most effective healthcare system for the cost. However, what we need to do now is examine these four qualities to place different weights on them and determine what we're willing to sacrifice, what we're not willing to sacrifice as a society to build better healthcare policy. Exactly. And I think that framework It's very helpful since it gives us four different areas of concern as opposed to just one single axis by which we can judge healthcare proposals. And two of the, I guess, competing visions for the American healthcare system, they have been coming up both in the 2020 elections as well as in this broader healthcare policy discussion. So in your view, what do you see as the, the Republican Party position on the healthcare system and the Democratic Party position on the healthcare system? And given the framework you've given us, where do you think they kind of fit into these different criteria? The Republican position predominantly involves 
expanding choice. And while that may sound like a positive thing, it definitely increases healthcare inequality as those with pre-existing conditions or who are in worse health will have to pay higher premiums, higher deductibles, and overall just much more for their medical care. Whereas the democratic option is the public option, which would be a government-run insurance plan that compete, it competes with private insurance while keeping a choice-based medical system. While this is a significant improvement over the Republicans' plan by expanding the number of Americans who are able to access care, it is far from perfect. It is a teeny baby step in the correct direction when there's so much possibility and potential if we as a society examine this framework to make much bolder and innovative reforms to our healthcare system. So you mentioned that this kind of current democratic position, the public option, would be a positive step forward. Our previous guest suggested that the current Medicare system massively undervalues healthcare costs. It pays a much lower rate than private insurers. So there is kind of this impulse to see some issues with a public option where it could undervalue healthcare costs, for example. In what ways do you think it is a key important step and do you and what do you say to those concerns that it would undervalue relative to private insurers still? A huge cost in our system is the administrative cost of healthcare. For instance, the US spends about $2,500 in administrative costs per person where our counterpart Canada spends about 550 a year. This huge discrepancy is part of what makes private insurance so expensive and why they do have to bill doctors and hospitals hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars more than the actual cost of healthcare because for every dollar spent on healthcare, um, somewhere between 30 and 50% is actually going to support administrative costs. And while the public option doesn't eliminate administrative costs, it is a step in the right direction for healthcare. From the perspective of a regular healthcare consumer, where do these administrative costs factor into the process? The administrative costs are not costs directly seen by the consumer. It's seen as the increased spending on a hospital or doctor's bill. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of insurance plans out there, and insurance companies and hospitals are constantly negotiating and renegotiating rates, which means that for every hospital, there has to be a hundred plus, in some cases, person billing department that figures out each individual insurance for individual procedures, for individual doctors, insurance plans under the insurance, and then has to bill the consumer versus the insurance versus the hospital the correct amount. And as I'm sure you can see, this requires immense amount of resources and also a lot of back and forth between the consumer, the hospital, and the insurance company, and often the government too through government-run programs to try to get what would be considered a fair insurance rate as the consumer and insurance company constantly almost renegotiate how much each one has to pay for individual procedures. So you would contend that this expansion of choice, you know, more affordable options for the American consumer 
really wouldn't ultimately help in that there would be, yes, more insurance and possibly cheaper plans, but the sheer amount of complexity introduced would not be beneficial in your view? Expanding the number of insurance plans Americans are able to access would be disastrous. Just think about the purpose of insurance. When we have a healthcare insurance system, we are saying that some people in life are unlucky because they are sicker than others, but they don't deserve inferior treatment or they should not be required to pay insane amounts just to access care. And by expanding the number of insurance programs available for you know healthier people, sicker people, people with varying pre-existing conditions, people will self-select into insurance programs that are cheapest for them, which defiles the entire point of insurance, which is to create a pool of both the healthy and the sick to help those who were unlucky in life by having poor health receive medical care that, as a society, we believe people deserve. They deserve access to medical treatment. When you mentioned the health, America's health care quilt, I think what you just described really gives a good explanation of that, because when you think of a quilt, you think of a bunch of different squares with different fabrics, different designs, different stitching, all of that kinds of stuff. And that's what you get with all these different plans and all these nuances to the system that are just hard to account for and add a lot of this administrative burden to our healthcare system. And at worst, cause people to fall through when there's not a patch of that quilt that's really fit to to catch them. Now, one thing I want to talk about with you, Isabel, is perhaps one of the most controversial ideas in American healthcare, which is the individual mandate. Now, that was something that was introduced under Obama with the Affordable Care Act and has since been repealed by Congress under the Trump administration. Could you tell us a little bit about what the individual mandate is and what the rationale is for creating it in the first place? The ACA is commonly referred to as a three-legged stool because there are three equally vital components of the law in order to have it function as an effective health insurance system. The first is subsidies, which is providing people with lower incomes the money required to purchase into the ACA market. The second is community rating, which is saying that people need to be charged the same rate irregardless of potential pre-existing conditions. And the third is the individual mandate, which is a tax levied on people who do not purchase insurance. And while the individual mandate is the least popular of this stool, it is equally as vital as all the other stools because repealing the tax on the individual mandate causes healthier people to select out of the insurance pool, which raises premiums. Actually, it raised premiums by 20% in 2018 for those who are sicker or unlucky and have to deal with a medical emergency. With the point of a healthcare system being to universalize the access to medical care, repealing the individual mandate just creates inequality by allowing people to select out of the insurance market if they believe that they will not use it as much as others. Would a public option require the individual mandate to be reinstated, do you believe? 
essentially would it require everyone to in some way be insured or pay that levy to function? Public option is a general term. There are many different public option proposals, but most that I've seen absolutely do require a mandate because if not, then only the poor and unhealthy people will select into a public option, which would mean that the premiums and deductibles are insanely expensive as opposed to if everyone had to purchase health insurance, the cost and burden of care would be spread out over the entire population of America. I see. So the idea is that even though a healthy person, a young healthy person, might not think that it's financially sensible for them to purchase health insurance, that in neglecting to do so, they actually increase the burdens on the vulnerable people who need assistance, who need health care, since the healthy people are not there to lower the overall cost of the healthcare system, correct? Exactly. Healthcare is an equalizer and it actually increases total social utility if everyone has healthcare because we're able to best distribute the benefits of medical care to those who need it the most. Yeah, and I know the individual mandate has gotten a lot of controversy since it was enacted and repealed, but it reminds me of the social security system and the social security FICA tax, which is, it effectively follows the same theoretical principles of smoothing out the burden of the social security system. And one of, I think, the, the ingenious parts of social security is that it smooths out the kind of costs and expenses of consumers over generations. And so even though I'm young, you're young, and we're not taking out social security and we're not retiring anytime soon, we're still paying into the system because in theory, in someday we will be older and we'll be able to take out from that system. And when you kind of apply this cross-generational, cross-social thinking to the healthcare system, at least in my mind, it makes the individual mandate much more appealing considering the fact that someday I will be older and sicker and probably need a system that effectively works for me. Absolutely. And in fact, Social Security and retirement in general is often referred to as a three-legged stool because you need the Social Security, the 401k, the savings in order to effectively retire. So all that sounds well and good, but one potential critique of the public option or especially a Medicare for all kind of system is that it will supposedly cost uh, America's medical innovation. The idea that we're the greatest at the world at developing all these drugs and procedures, and the only way we can do it is because our healthcare costs so much that some people can't afford it. And the natural impulse is to say, well, that's potentially inhumane, but others have said, well, it's a necessary element for helping out the third world and other countries, and that's our cross to bear. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on this debate. I think thinking of medical reform and innovation as the driving force is a misguided framework for the debate. We should be focused on the utility of medicine. We would get so much more utility from distributing medical advances that we already have. For instance, maternal mortality in the U.S. is huge, especially when compared to other countries. We have 26.4 deaths for 1,000 live births compared to the UK at 9.2 deaths. And 60% of these maternal deaths are classified by the CDC as preventable. And the majority occur in either low-income neighborhoods or 
for minority women. Just one small example of how equalizing access to prenatal care could save thousands of lives, but instead, with a focus on the latest and greatest innovation, all these lives are lost because resources are going into a rare genetic disease or a rare cancer instead of something basic such as making sure the fewest number of mothers die during childbirth. That's kind of a, a grisly statistic that you bring up. And I think it really, it effectively gets at your point of why we need to reframe this debate in terms of access as opposed to, say, innovation or cost. Kind of going off of that, one of the things that I know we discussed earlier is about how the way the American healthcare system is, the way it makes healthcare kind of inaccessible to a lot of people, has this effect of disincentivizing particularly vulnerable people from obtaining preventative care, which you say is often cheaper than emergency care. Could you explain a little bit about kind of how this comes about and where we should be thinking about investing resources to maximize the utility of medicine, as you put it? People who fall through this patchwork quilt of healthcare often don't receive the preventative care that is required because they don't have insurance, they don't understand the system, uh, and don't know how much they're going to have to pay for routine screenings and just check up basic care that everyone should be able to get access to. And because they don't have access to this basic care, down the line, uh, these people who fall through the quilt will have higher overall emergency care costs. They're not able to detect the cancer in stage one and will go to the hospital when it's finally debilitating in stage four or five with only a few weeks or months left to live. And these emergency care costs of treating diseases once they've progressed so far, far exceed the costs of preventative treatments and screenings. The challenge that jumps to mind for me when discussing these public health care options is, of course, the classic question, you know, how do we pay for it? And your prior point, I think, is a big part of explaining how we're already struggling with that issue in that there's already these massive costs incurred when people don't get preventative care. So that answers a lot of that question. I'd be curious about your thoughts on kind of the question of paying for the system, you know, potentially parts of the individual mandate, parts of the fact that costs are already so high without preventative care. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on how we fund all this. In our healthcare system right now, we are throwing away immense amounts of money. First, through administrative costs, paying these businesses, corporations, and bureaucrats to sort through health insurance is immensely costly. So your main argument is essentially trying to cut through this red tape is the main way we'll pay for things. Do you have any kind of views on the funding of a potential government program, where that taxation would come from, what it would take to get there? So under a system of medically underwritten premiums, which is where there are multiple insurance options and people can choose their level of insurance based on the cost. Insurance companies are able to charge different amounts for different people based on their pre-existing conditions. And this actually leaves a lot of money on the table because people from all up and down the health spectrum are paying more for insurance than necessary. By having a single payer insurance where everyone pays the same rate no matter their health status. We're not just able to equalize costs, we're actually able to 
more effectively and efficiently use money and cut down on a lot of the lost funds in the healthcare system. Yes, this would likely involve a tax, but Americans are already paying insane amounts for insurance, especially when compared to counterparts in Canada and Europe. Yeah, I think a useful term that I think a lot of us have seen in the our studies of economics is the concept of a deadweight loss. And when you talk about these administrative costs and administrative burdens, in my mind, they seem very similar to a deadweight loss, which is kind of the utility and the value that we're missing out just with this burdensome, very frictionless system that just happens to dominate the American healthcare market. On that kind of that topic of single payer and looking forward at potential solutions and policy proposals, when it comes to what I would consider the democratic or left types of policy recommendations, I feel like there are three big ones that stand out, which are the public option, which is what Joe Biden has been running on, Medicare for all, which is what Bernie Sanders has run on, and then kind of what I see is the the next step after that, which is socialized medicine, which is arguably what the British have with their National Health Service. And that's where not only does the government handle health insurance, they also operate the hospitals and employ a lot of the doctors. When we're looking at this leftward spectrum of potential healthcare solutions, what do you see are some of the pros and cons of each of these three broad schemes for healthcare reform? One pro of the public option is that it would be the easiest to implement, both politically and also practically. It requires the least amount of negotiating with insurance agencies and the existing medical structure. However, it has many downsides, mainly that it doesn't do all that much by itself to improve access, quality, efficacy, accountability of healthcare. The single-payer system, in my view, would be ideal. And this is where the government pays for the expenses, but hospitals and medical facilities are privately run. Under the single-payer system, we avoid a lot of the deadweight loss that the current competitive insurance market has, but we don't switch to socialized medicine because our current system right now doesn't have the capacity for the government to effectively run hospitals and update standards. And while socialized medicine is a phenomenal idea, currently it would be incredibly difficult to implement just because we lack the infrastructure to ensure that the transition is smooth and that our current medical standards don't dissipate during that transition. One potential argument that does come to mind for me personally when discussing socialized medicine is the increasing issues in rural America with access to medicine, where a Medicare for all system certainly would, one hopes, ensure that everyone has equal coverage for health care. But under our current situation, it seems increasingly that hospitals are decreasing in quality and quantity of care throughout rural America. And my natural impulse from discussing socialized medicine is that, of course, a government could require that there be a hospital and build it out there and ensure it runs, but that does bring on these dead weights. So I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that idea. I think the COVID-19 pandemic has shown the inequality, not just in cost of healthcare, but in 
access to healthcare as people in rural communities are not able to access the same care as people in urban communities. And in terms of socialized medicine being a solution, it is definitely a viable solution to increase equality of access to care for all, no matter where in America they live. Politically, it is much more difficult and would require increased policy that we definitely as a society can think through and should be thinking through. We're just not at the point yet where we've fully thought through how to best implement socialized medicine, unlike single payer with many proposals and phenomenal thinkers who understand the system. That's definitely a, an interesting point when we think about the potential of socialized medicine to just be cognizant of the fact that it would be a dramatic change from the way things currently are. And I know I mentioned the British National Health Service as the example of socialized medicine. And just from the cursory research that I've done into it, it was, it was an effort to get it politically, uh, to get it popular and implemented, as well as just the administrative effort of creating the system. It, it does take work. It's not an overnight solution. To be fair, none of these are overnight solutions. They're deep and challenging projects that we'd be, have to undertake as a society. On that note, I think, Isabel, I really want to thank you for joining us this week to discuss the healthcare system. What you, I think, beautifully refer to as the America's healthcare quilt. And hopefully, based on some of the recommendations that you've given us and our listeners, we can turn that quilt into a nice American blanket of healthcare that is able to hold on and account for every American. Isabel, is there anything you'd like to send us off with as we continue to think and reflect on the American healthcare system? The entire point of our healthcare system is create a large risk pool to help those who are unlucky and don't have the quality health that some others do. As a society, we need to examine the four qualities of healthcare and decide that people should not be punished for being unlucky. More insurance options just raise the costs for people who are unfortunate enough to have poor health, the people who need it the most. A single payer option is the best solution to equalize access to care while maintaining the efficacy, equity, affordability, and accountability of healthcare. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us, Isabel, and thank you so much for continuing this discussion of the American healthcare system we've been having. I want to thank everyone for listening to this week's episode of New Perspectives with Isabel Present, and I hope you'll stick around for this week's installment of Class Struggle with Ariana Bennett. Welcome back to this week's installment of Class Struggle, where we compete for your extra electives. So, Isabel, can you tell the listeners a little bit about one of your favorite or most impactful classes that you've taken here at Northeastern? Last year, I took a class called Law and Economics with Professor Michael Stone. I thought it was an absolutely phenomenal class that combined two of my interests, politics and economics. I know a shock coming from a politics, philosophy, and economics major. But in this class, we applied some of the standard models of economics to tort 
law. It was amazing to be able to see how some of these models held up, but in other times they completely fell apart in the quote-unquote real world. Amazing. And then how have these real-world applications that you applied in this class maybe informed um, some future projects or maybe even a co-op? I took this class while I was looking for co-ops. I originally was looking for law-focused calls, but after taking this class, I realized the immense power of economics as a model and directed my co-op searching to places where I could use economic thought processes of supply and demand in order to analyze our world instead of the law route. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, I'm Ariana Bennett, one of the podcast producers. Thank you so much to Isabel Present for joining us for this episode of Class Struggle. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of New Perspectives. We're glad to continue our discussion about healthcare in America with Isabel and to get her insights into one of the most important political issues of our time. I want to thank Isabel for joining us on New Perspectives. And I also want to thank our producers, Brian Grady and Ariana Bennett, for all of their work to bring New Perspectives to you, the listener. Make sure to check out nupoliticalreview.com for more from Isabel and all of the other great writers contributing to Nuper. If you're a Northeastern student looking to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at nuprpodcast at gmail.com. We're always looking for new guests, and we'd love to have you on the show. Additionally, if you're interested in publishing an article with NUPR, check out the submission link at the top of nupoliticalreview.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.